the most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by journalist Kara Swisher. Swisher is the host of On with Kara Swisher, the co-host of the popular Pivot podcast, and an editor-at-large for New York Magazine. She's been covering tech since the early 1990s, first in the Washington Post, and then later, the Wall Street Journal, interviewing many of the leading figures in the field, including Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Ted Sarandos. She's often been called Silicon Valley's most feared and well-liked journalist. But in recent years, she's moved to Washington, D.C., where she's expanded her coverage of politics. Her recent conversations with Stacey Abrams, Hillary Clinton, and now Senator-elect John Fetterman are all worth checking out. They feature her trademark, no-nonsense style of interviewing. Given that Swisher sits at the intersection of tech and politics, she seemed like the exact person I wanted to unpack this week with. So, on the first half, we discuss the midterms, the state of the GOP, the role of social media in politics her contentious relationship with Elon Musk, and how the Tesla founder is unwittingly destroying Twitter. On the back half, Swisher shares why she turned to journalism in college, the early days of covering the internet, and her kinship with the late Steve Jobs. After what's been, let's be honest, a tense and exhausting week here in the U.S., it was nice to sit with someone like Kara, 
whose smart, honest, and good-humored perspective is, I think, much needed right about now. So, without further ado, this is Kara Swisher. Kara Swisher, pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Why don't we just start with the midterms? For months, we've heard reports about this looming red wave, which would have been a referendum on President Biden and the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. But Tuesday's election might be shaping up to be the best midterm cycle for an incumbent president since the rally around the flag election of 2002. Sure is. As this week has unfolded, what are you taking away from these results? Well, I wasn't one that thought there was going to be. I like this whole red wave tsunami. I just never believe any of it because it's all people marketing themselves, like it's psyching people out. So I was seeing a lot of different things. I thought people did care about abortion. I had a stroke, just like John Fetterman. I didn't think people were ever mean to me, and I don't think they were mean to him about that. We did a bunch of podcasts and, and had a bunch of people saying, maybe it's going to be a little more even-handed than you think. I'm more of an independent, but a Democrat. And I think the angry people are real angry, and the most people just want to have their lives and they, they're tired of the noise or higher of the election denial noise in this case. And they want to move on. And because of the grip that President Trump has on the Republican Party, nobody's allowed to move on. But they they did. That's what they did. The voters said, we're moving on. So President Biden declared Wednesday that American voters sent a clear and unmistakable message that they wanted to preserve both democracy and abortion rights. Do you think there is a clear and unmistakable message coming out of this? Yes, I think they I think abortion rights matter to most people. You see it in the polls. This is not a new fresh idea. Most polls are sort of like what? What did they do? I think it's really important to pay attention to previous polls which all are the same. It's the same thing on gun control. It's the same thing on a lot of stuff. But it's just these politicians won't do it because they have louder constituencies that lock them out if they don't do their bidding. And so I do think people were very concerned about abortion. They're very concerned about the economy, too. And they also are a little scared. They're scared about the insurrection. They're scared about all these election deniers. They're scared about people telling them that voting is a fraudulent when it, there's no proof that it is. If it's fraudulent, why am I voting? It just creates all kinds of weird things happening. And so People want, like democracy and they like to vote and they like to stop being screamed at by people. Do the election deniers scare you? Yes, because they're so committed. Anyone who wants to blow anything up, and I mean it, they actually wanted to physically blow things up at the Capitol, I'm scared of. Over at your show on at New York Magazine and Vox, you spoke with Chris Potter, a reporter out of Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. who said in 2020, Trump lost. In 2022, Trumpism lost. Do you believe that? Yeah. I think, well, the Republicans are busy eating him alive right now. I don't know how long that'll last, but they're certainly gnawing at him. It's not Trumpism. It's the election. It's the, it's the bad parts of it. I think a lot of people like lower taxes. Uh, I think a lot of people like stand up and, you know, be in your face. I think people like that in a politician. I don't think they like this election denialism. It's just too far. And it's full of crazies. And it's like, why are we taking lead from crazies? And when it's been proven over and over again, and lots of people in his administration have left him on that. I mean, Mike Pence kind of has. But I think a lot of people are tired of the noise and it's not true. And it, he got a chance in court to prove it and he, he didn't prove it. And now they're done and they want to move on because they're tired of it because they got other things to do, including from the pandemic. We're trying to clean up from that. You alluded to it, but one of the loudest stories coming out of this week is what the right is calling a Republican reset. Yeah. In the immediate aftermath of Tuesday's election, 
pro-GOP outlets like Fox News, the New York Post, and the National Review all ran with these kind of embittered elegies for President Trump. Yes, they did. They're trying to kill him off, yeah. Conservative columnist Mark Thiessen claimed, this is an absolute disaster for the Republican Party. Do you think the GOP is finally ready to do some some introspection and grapple with the Trump problem. Let me say I'll believe it when I see it, when they have the courage of their convictions. Kevin McCarthy, after the insurrection, said Donald Trump had responsibility. Now he his lips are firmly planted on Donald Trump's ass. So, uh, you know, they all were like all in for the, oh, this insurrection was bad. So if the insurrection didn't bother them, you know, they need to lose a lot is what they have to do in order to get this. But it's at our expense. It's at our expense all the time. And so, honestly, I'll believe it when I see it. Good. That's great. Rupert Murdoch calling him Humpty or Trumpty Dumpty or saying the future about Ron DeSantis or the Wall Street Journal thing, calling him a loser. OK, OK, but you got him here. So let's talk about that also. And so until they actually stick to it, I would not believe them. I don't they don't deserve being believed until they actually do something about it. You think the rhetoric is not enough? I don't know. I don't know. It sounds pretty bad, but I don't believe it because after the insurrection, they did it and then they backed away. So I, I'll believe it when I see it. That's what I'll say. One of the biggest winners from the GOP side is probably Ron DeSantis out of Florida, who beat Charlie Crist by nearly 20 points. He did a good job. He seems poised to make a 24, 2024 presidential bid. I don't want to spend too much time talking about 2024 after we spent the last year talking about 2022. But mm-hmm. what do you make of him? I don't know. I don't know if he has the set to go up against Trump. Trump's pretty good hand-to-hand combat. What does that mean, set? Well, it's balls, set of balls. Just wanted to clarify. Yeah, that's what it is, a set of them. He hasn't been tested outside of Florida. I find him not particularly likable or charming. He just yells at the press a lot and yells at masks. So I want to see something else. I think Trump is still the lead at this point. It doesn't seem like there's anybody else. The others got eviscerated by Trump one after the other. If Trump does decide to run, do you think he's the one to take the nomination? They have to jump at once. They have to all hold hands and jump and they won't do it because they're cowardly. They've shown themselves to be cowardly. So if they all work together, sure. If they all back one person, sure. They just don't do it. The minute Trump lobs some nasty word at them or yells at them or tweets at them or not tweets, truths at them, they go all limp. So I don't know what to say. And I think that DeSantis has got I, I have not seen anything to show me that he has that ability to, I think Mike Pence has shown more backbone and I don't, I think he's got a noodle for a backbone. I'm waiting to see. We'll see if he doesn't wilt at the first uh, attacks. I think Donald Trump has lost his mind and probably has some legal problems and et cetera, et cetera. I think they're hoping the legal problems will take him down and they don't have to do it, but they're the ones that have to do it. If Republicans can look in the mirror or at least think about looking in the mirror, I think we should do the same with the kind of myopic horse race coverage we've come to expect from the press. Reporter Michael Hobbs wrote this week, voters don't need journalists to predict what will happen. They need journalists who tell them the choices in front of them. Do you think you've contributed to this polling and and punditry problem where coverage is focused on the messenger instead of the message? No. No, I think that's just a lazy way to think about it. There's been amazing reporting. It's not true. It's not actually true if you actually read reporting. Lazy from Michael Hobbs? For anybody, for this idea, the press is this, the press is that. There's been too much horse racing, for sure. But that's since the beginning of time. That's If you go back to George Washington, that's what they were doing. <laughs> I think there's been a lot of very thoughtful people, really good reporting. I think the reporter's job is not just to say, this person's for this, this person's for this. If someone lies, they have to point it out. This is what they said yesterday. This is what they're saying today. 
things like that. That's also the job of the press. I think there's been some very good coverage. I did three local reporters today on the podcast, my favorite podcast. Mm-hmm. I didn't bring national people in who just parachute into these states. I had a reporter from Georgia, a reporter from Arizona, and a reporter from Pennsylvania. And they know what's going on in the ground. And we had a great talk. And I learned things I didn't know because they're there. And so I think, you know, there's some amazing reporters across the country. There is too much of it on cable and television, you know, the horse race aspect of it and columnists. But I do think there's plenty of good reporting happening. I really do. I, I've, I've read it. I've read it not just in the Washington Post and the um, the New York Times, but in the San Francisco Chronicle. The Los Angeles Times has been doing a killer job. All the papers, the Arizona Central, I've been reading a lot. I'm really good. If anything, I think we should be more, and something we pioneered at Recode, when something in tech happened, usually people just lapped it up and wrote, this person's making this, this is this. And we would be like, okay, this person's making this. Let us tell you what it was before. Let's tell you why they're doing it. And I call it reported analysis. And I think that is great. I think it's really great to not just give them the facts, but to say, all right, this is what we think based on our reporting is happening. And I think that's helpful to people. People are confused and upset. And so we have to make them, give them illumination. Well, let's pivot to tech a little bit because Mm -hmm. I think your coverage has been hyper-specific and detail-oriented for many, many years. Now, you've been covering Elon Musk dating back to 1999. In that time, you've called him funny, rude, compelling, obnoxious, accessible, easy to deal with, hard to deal with, angry, charming, a very good executive, a complex figure, and even as recently as April of this year in New York Magazine, a visionary. He is. All those things are true. After this past month, where we've seen Musk fire off homophobic, anti-democratic, anti-Semitic tweets, Mm -hmm. do you think he's still the man you've said he is? Look, I've had back and forth, a lot of beefs with him over the years, and sometimes he degenerates into this, what he's doing now, obnoxious, cruel, etc., which I I noted in that piece. That's a piece I wrote calling him the id of the id of tech. I think I called him the id of tech. At his very best, it's a good thing when he's around people where they're, they're enablers, he, he gets to sort of be the bad boy and he does it too far. I think he's still a visionary. What he's done at Tesla and SpaceX is no one's done it. There's nobody. I can't point to anybody except maybe Steve Jobs and, and Jeff Bezos who've done anything so breathtakingly big. His is bigger, really, because it's cars and rockets, right? It just is. And so you can be a visionary and still take a really bad turn here. And that's what I think he's done. Look, Thomas Edison, in case you're interested, was a jerk. And I think we have to think about the idea is you can be a great visionary and then also be a jerk and you can be malevolent and you can be all these things. I think he has taken a turn for all his worst qualities and he seems to be committed to staying there in that place. What are those worst qualities? Cruel, dismissive, homophobic. That tweet he did about Paul Pelosi is there's nothing to defend it. Nothing at all. It's terrible and he should apologize. Uh, Mean to people he's laying off, thinking he hung the moon when he's using ideas of others to fix Twitter, pulling things off the shelf that other people made and then not acknowledging their contribution, surrounding himself with people I think are not as good as he could surround himself with. All kinds of things. It seems like he's in sort of this bubble where everyone agrees with him and he doesn't allow anybody else inside. Well, he's let you inside that bubble throughout the years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Just a month ago, he emailed you asking for advice on how to improve the platform. What were your ideas? 
Oh, all kinds of things. We were doing some stuff on Twitter Spaces, and we had just signed a really big ad deal, um, a very big one for Twitter Spaces for the first time. We were working with the Twitter staff, and the minute he started doing his crazy tweets, they pulled out. That was for $250,000? Yeah, $250,000 for a month. Yeah, it was just it was just the beginning of monetization of Twitter Spaces, and we were going to share it, and he had to be him and ruined it all. But fine, whatever. It's a lot of money, I think, but he may not think it's a lot of money. He may not think it's a good business, but we were trying something fresh. You know, I gave him all kinds of ideas about discussions, groups, being able to select your own Twitter, dealing with people who dunk on you, dealing with bots, et cetera, et cetera. And then he got mad at me about a tweet that he was wrong about, but that's whatever. So you were willing to go into a professional partnership with him then? No, 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 no. We were doing, this is, I was making content. I'm a content creator. Uh And so this is a platform, just like I would do it if I did it on Instagram or TikTok. I happen to like Twitter. And I've been doing Twitter spaces. I've done dozens and dozens of them over the last two years because I was testing it out because I really like an audience who, who talks back. And I thought there could be substantive conversations on Twitter because a lot of it is so dunky and so quick. And either it's clever or it's obnoxious or mean or just plain mean. I brought in guests. I'd interview them. And then the audience got to ask questions. It was wonderful. And people turned out were just dying for this content. And so I, in talking with the Twitter executives who are working, I'm like, let's monetize this. And they had some ideas. We sold it to a, just like I would a podcast or anything else, mm-hmm. just like I would with any platform. Let's, let's share the, um, the risk and we'll share the reward. And that was all. It wasn't, I wasn't working for them. I, I'm a content creator. And so I wanted them to make money from Twitter And then so I could make money from Twitter. Not for them, but with them. Well, they didn't have any control over the content whatsoever, neither the advertiser nor Twitter. They just would sell it with us. We would sell it. And people liked it because they liked being involved with good content. I mean, I've got Amy Klobuchar on. I had I had so many great people on there. And what my favorite part was the listeners were able to ask questions. And let me just tell you, I did dozens of them. Not one obnoxious question at all. Really not one dunking. People were genuinely excited to have a great conversation. Really? Yes. Oh my God. The questions were wonderful. And the only one that was weird was someone asking me to me and Scott Galloway to lunch. And I, that was fine. Whatever. You don't like lunch. I don't eat lunch, but that's okay. I didn't want to go lunch <laughs> with people I meet on Twitter. In any case, I just was, it was so rich. The content was so rich. And so Twitter understood that because they saw the numbers. They were getting, we were getting thousands of people each one. Why not find an advertiser? People like to be against good. There's not much good content to sell on Twitter. And this was great content. It's like a podcast live, like a live podcast. We had several months of sales. And the minute he started going, I'm going to go thermonuclear on you woke advertisers, All each which of that sentence is such bullshit. They don't want to buy in an unsafe place because they're capitalists. That's really pretty much the situation. So it blew up all the deals. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is he has often sought out your counsel. Mm-hmm. So why would this deal fall through well, he doesn't trust me more than other people. He doesn't care. I don't know. I explained the whole thing to him. I said, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. This is super. I said, these people are great. These Twitter people were great I was working with. I don't know. I don't know why he had to say those things. They were indulgent. For the last month, you've been hinting at another platform that could serve as an alternative to Twitter. What would that look like? Well, people contact me, of course. Anyone who's thinking of doing something like this, I'm a pretty active Twitter user and I have a lot of followers, so they're going to contact me. And I've covered the company since it was founded. So I kind of have some information. I also have covered all the other attempts. And first of all, it's really hard to create a network, right? Twitter's got gold here, but they're spending it rather quickly. And so it's hard to create a network easily. It would be highly moderated. TikTok is very moderated. It's the most moderated. It's now making the most money. It would focus on news. It would focus on 
what I like to do. News is what I go to Twitter for and some funny memes and things like that. It would focus on good conversation, substantive conversation. It would probably have an event element to it. Um, and so every entrepreneur out there is, and, and venture capitalists are like, this is an opportunity. He's busy blowing up pieces of something that's probably valuable. Why don't we get in there? There's got, there's, this is an opening. So that's all, I'm, that's what I'm talking about. I've, so I've been called by all of them and I'm happy to talk to them because I would really like there to be a place that literally, I don't have to listen to J.D. Vance insult me. Like, I don't really want to hear from that guy. No mute button for you. I know, but I don't want to do that. Why should I have to do that? It's just like, come into our bar and have people spill drinks on your head. And well, you'll just have to shoot them. Like, I don't want to. I want it to bar a place where they don't spill drinks on my head. But you don't go to bars. I don't go to bars. I don't like them. You know, I have bad eyesight and bad <laughs> hearing. So, and I don't drink. So, does nothing for me. I like a restaurant. I'll go to a restaurant anytime. And I also don't want people to vomit my soup. So I'd like to go to a restaurant where people don't vomit my soup. Has that happened to you before? No, but I'm just saying it's a, it's a metaphor. <laughs> I'm using metaphors here. Did you never take English courses? But, no, I never heard of a metaphor. I figure, yeah. Okay. It's like a simile. Similes, no idea. Onomatopoeia. My favorite was onomatopoeia. <laughs> Boom! I like how you asked me, did you ever take an English class? I'm, I'm just asking. Think. No, thank you. Thank you. I <laughs> was a Twitter dunk. I was in a Twitter mood right there, but go ahead. You have to dunk on someone. Might as well do it to me. Yeah, right. You've long said that Twitter and Facebook have architectural problems. I'm asking you this as you're looking at your phone, so it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm just my producer's like, where are you? We got to give her the schedule. This has been on the books. I know. Come on, I know. Now. I know that. Of course it has. I know. It never stops. I'm a content maker and they need me to make content. I, I, I'm, I'm aware of this. They, they keep asking me to. You've long said that Twitter and Facebook have architectural problems. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote. The way it's architected and the way that the business plan wants this to happen, wants anger to happen, wants engagement to be enragement, the whole way it's built is a problem. Yes. Theoretically, should there be a place we go to next, places you've been hearing about, how do they avoid this under a capitalistic system? They don't have to stress advertising as much. Paying for things, I don't think is a bad thing. I just think Elon's got not getting money for no value. I pay for Prime. It's worth it to me. I pay for Netflix. It's worth it to me. And so you've got to give people a value proposition that's worth it to them, either reading articles or micropayments built from the start or all kinds of things you could offer um, in this situation. You could have advertising, but maybe it's targeted. I like advertising on Instagram. I don't use Instagram because I don't like Facebook. You like it? I like it as a product. I see why people like it. I love TikTok. I have a problem with the Chinese Communist Party. So there's everything has their you know thorn and rose. But TikTok's great advertising, good, helpful. I like it. I bought things off of it. It's, it's It has efficacy. I think it has to, it can sell things. It can do commerce. It can do subscriptions. There can be special events like we were doing. That was a way to make money. There's lots of things you could do to make money. It doesn't have to be just pure advertising base, which let me give you a good example. I use this example a lot. Google is built for speed. It's not going to be a metaphor, right? No, it's not. Google is built for, if you take it apart, it's built for speed and accuracy and getting what you want, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't get mad using Google. It's just a utility, right? You don't go, ah, these results. When you search for Anti-Defamation League, you get Anti-Defamation League. You get what you want. That's what it's built for. That's the architecture of it. When you search on YouTube, though, you immediately get anti-Semitic rants <laughs> when you search for ADL. Why? Because they because they want you to be upset. And that, that helps. A lot of Facebook and YouTube and to an extent some Twitter is built for engagement, virality, and speed. And that translates to enragement easily. It's an easy way to get people going. It's a traffic accident. And so 
the more enragement, the more engagement you get. And not always. Sometimes you're just doing regular things. But the less it's a utility and the more it is a an advertising-based system, you're going to get this. They want churn to happen. It's an algorithm problem. Yes, and a business model problem. I think more more a business model problem. As a reporter, do you think the spread of misinformation on these platforms can be eliminated? Do you think there's a way for less incendiary tweets reporting to gain traction on the platform? Or is, is inflammatory always going to win this? Well... Elon talked, sort of was re-mouthing what people have said. For, I liked that yesterday on an ad call, he's like mouthing stuff that people have been talking about for years. Like he just found out like kind of stuff. But he said something that's very common, which is freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of reach. Meaning people can say it, but you don't have to put it on a billboard or give it more, push it out to everybody. You can like kind of isolate it in some way. I think they could do a lot more of that. And usually a lot of the craziest stuff is from just a couple hundred accounts that they could target and cut off. It's mostly people just gaming the system like they're doing right now on Twitter where everybody's becoming Rudy Giuliani or LeBron James or Dave Chappelle, whatever. It's somewhat funny on some level. So I think that's one of the issues is you really have to you have to control it. At this point, these players know how to game the system so well. I think it's really hard. And then the flood of information is so vast that it's hard to control. So the way it was architected, they hate to edit. They just hate to. I call it editing. They call it censorship. It's not. You're just this is my platform. And this is what I want on here. And and of course, what's really rich is all of these platforms, both including Snapchat, they're all owned by one person who has control over everything. And they're like, I want everyone to have control. I'm like, so why do you have total control of the actual business? So it's kind of rich getting lectures about community from people who don't share power. After the break, more from Kara Swisher. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's 
most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month. Less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. I want to go back to the start of you doing this work. It's the early 1980s. You're at Georgetown and nineties. Oh, that, yes. I not. I was at Georgetown for college. That yes, was different. Yes. Okay. Do have faith in me. Don't worry. All right. Okay. We're gonna be okay. You're at Georgetown in the Foreign Service School, writing for the college newspaper. Mm-hmm. But one day, while reading the Washington Post, you stumbled upon an article you didn't like. What happened next? It was about El Salvador. They had a visitor from, um, I covered the same story and the guy did it badly. And I was pissed because I love the Washington Post. I called them and I said, this sucks. And here's why. I somehow got the Metro editor and I started complaining about the piece. And I was like, this sucks. And here's why. I covered this myself. This is full of errors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't think that, of course, they don't send their finest to cover speeches at Georgetown. But nonetheless, he had said, yo, you think you could do better? And I said, I could do better every day of the week and twice on Sundays with my eyes closed. <laughs> and so he he said, oh, you sound pretty cheeky. Get down here and we'll talk about it. And he hired me. You're 18 at the time, 19? 19. Yeah, I was young when I, I was 17 when I went to college. So it must have been my sophomore year. Under 20. Under 20 with a lot of gumption. A lot of gumption. I had already proven that before that. But yes. When you're taking the M15 bus down to the 15th and L, 
station, making your way to the Washington Post newsroom. What's going through your head? I'm pissed. <laughs> I was mad. I, was, I love the Washington Post. How dare they make mistakes? I was very angry at them for not trying harder. I know it sounds crazy, but I, I li- love the Post. I, I was I'm very upset about the Janet Cook thing where she lied about that. Ki- I read that whole series. I was so moved and it turned out it was all a lie. And I was very upset by that. And I thought they could do better. And so even this small thing, I was annoyed. I was annoyed. So I wanted to make it better. Did you know even then that you were good at this job? Uh, yeah, I did. I'd already worked for the student newspaper. My freshman year, I won the student award that was won by seniors. I just had a good sense of a good story. I always did. And so newspapers at that time was the perfect way to do it. That was the medium that worked the best. Oddly enough, Ron Klain was the business manager of the, of the paper. He's now Biden's chief of staff, which is kind of funny. After you have that newsroom moment, you intern at the Post for two years while in college. Mm-hmm. The paper would end up hiring you full time shortly thereafter. At the paper, you covered retail for a whole lot of time until 1997 when you left for the Wall Street Journal and, and moved out to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there. It was, I had left the Post to write a book about AOL and then I never came back. What was the moment you realized covering tech was what you had to do? The minute I started covering it at the Washington Post, David Ignatius, who was the editor of the business section at the time, you know, I was the young person on the staff. So they're like, let's give it, let's give this online stuff to the young person. I really was. I was under, I think I must have been under 30 and everyone else was older. And so this newfangled tech stuff, this young lady will figure out kind of thing. And so the minute I used it and started talking to people around the world, I really got, I got it. I was like, oh, whoa, this is a worldwide communications network. I was very attuned to mediums, television, radio. And this was like, oh my God, it's an interactive television, radio, print. It's everything. And so I thought this was really interesting. I was a big reader about inventors. And I really thought, oh, I see. I see where this is going. At college, you were interested in propaganda. Do you think that focus or interest made you particularly equipped for this internet moment? Yeah, completely. I had studied in college at the Foreign Service School. I was very attuned to what Hitler did in Nazi Germany. Well, I was more focused on the propaganda he used to dehumanize people and how effective it was. And so I studied that a lot, like a lot. I was really interested in the books he put out and the cartoons. And I was really like, wow, you could really do a lot of damage. I looked at a lot of uh, Chinese stuff, East Germany. So I was always very interested in manipulation of people's minds through propaganda. And that's what this is. We use the word misinformation, but it's propaganda. Why do you think that is? Why don't you not use the word propaganda? No. Why do you think you're interested? I hate liars. I hate liars. I hate people being manipulated. I see how easy it is. You, yeah, all the disasters of our centuries have all had that element to them. You know, I started off, I can't believe people did this. And then I'm like, of course people did this. You know, once you start studying it, there's a great book called The Willing German People, Ron Rosenbaum, I think it is. And this whole idea is we treat Hitler, or I'm just using Hitler in this case, as a monster. How how could this happen? He was such an outlier. He wasn't an outlier. The whole country went along with him. How do you get a whole country to go along with you on one of the most horrible things of all? It was not a secret. They knew what was happening. And to say they didn't is just a lie. It's just not true. And so, you know, it's easier to make him into a a unique monster that just happened out of nowhere rather than, oh, I see every, like, you can see this with uh, Trump is not killing millions of people, but although some people think he has through the COVID misinformation, but you could see the people who believe in Trump. They, they become more and more weaponized in so many ways. I have my own mother. She, I have a video of her right when Trump was 
right, in 2016 or 2015, where she's like, he's a con man, he's a criminal, he's such, he's terrible. Three years later, he's brilliant, he's genius. It was propaganda that changed her mind. Did you show her that video? I did. And she said what about her past self? Ah, well, I don't know what to say. (laughs) I don't like him. The most she'll say is, well, I don't really like him. I just think he's better than Biden. Then she goes on a Biden rant because she's spent all her time in front of Fox News. And if you watch that, one day you become homicidal. Honestly, you do. I think that is true. I was there one time when it snowed and I was stuck inside and had to listen to her watching Fox News. I was homicidal by the end of the day. Everything's fearful. Everything is like coming at you. Everyone's trying to hurt you. White people are at risk. It just went on and on and on. And I was literally like, my mother was like, you know, white people are at risk or something like that. Or I don't think she said white people, but you know, crime everywhere. I said, when's the last time you were mugged? Well, never, but, and I go, never, let's focus in on never. It's like not true, never, you know, just the facts don't matter. And I hate, I hate the lack of facts. I hate it. I hate it. Something that I think comes across in your reporting and especially in your interviewing is trying to get the truth out of the people that you're talking to. You said once, when I was a young reporter, I used to wonder what people were lying to me about. And I think the more effective thing is what they're lying to themselves about. Yep. When did you learn this? When, when did this shift happen? You know, you're always sort of, oh, is this the truth? Do I have to check this? And then I'm like, oh, my God, they believe it. Like, I, we, you know, in Silicon Valley, I was dealing with a lot of mostly young men, and they literally believed because they did a good dating service, they knew everything there was to know about educational reform. And I was like, no, you don't. Why would you imagine? Oh, well, I, I got this. And I'm like, you don't got this. Experts don't got this. And so I was always struck by that. And I thought, oh, my God, they believe that their skills transfer because they did one thing well, that they could do another thing well. And it was somewhat revelatory in that regard. Then I saw it. I'm like, oh, I see. They're lying to themselves. They have to, to get up every day. In the preparation for these interviews, how do you go about following that prompt? I read up on people. I know. See, a lot of these people I've known for decades, so I don't need a lot of prep with some of them. But I do start thinking about what are the key questions I want to ask them. Stuff I don't know about, like tomorrow I've got to interview that woman who won the Nobel Prize for chemistry. And I, I, didn't, I didn't take chemistry, so I'm going to have to bone up on what she did. You took English, though. I took English. That's right. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm really like going, oh, my God. So, of course, I've enlisted my son, who's really great at chemistry. So to explain some concepts to me that she was she's dealing with. And so I'm going to read up on her by smart people. And um, so I read up on people. I try to think of what a regular person would want to know. I try not to get into the weeds with people sometimes unless the weeds are interesting. I let conversations happen. I don't do very strict scripting as a lot of podcasts do um, because I think it takes away from the um, the serendipity of a conversation. When you're doing these interviews, there is an amount of human information that I think you know and hold, but do not put into the work. Well, it is in the work. You just don't see it. I know it will set them off. We just did a show on Elon for on for Monday. And I was listening to an interview and he got mad because of COVID stuff and he wanted to get off the interview. Shall I just leave this interview? You know, he did that. He did one of those. Which he's done to you before. Oh, yeah. Lots of times. And I was listening to myself. I was like, good job, Kara. I literally got the answer out of him, calmed him down at the same time. But he answered. And then it got it it was very revelatory. I thought, oh, good job for me because I knew him. I knew what would what would calm him down because I talked to him so much. And it was, I just, I hadn't listened to it in a while. I was like, that was pretty good, Kara Swisher. You mentioned your show, your episode from Thursday of this week. You ended with talking about the win for John Fetterman in Pennsylvania. You've been a vocal advocate for Fetterman who suffered a stroke 
earlier this year. I'm not an advocate for Fetterman. I'm an advocate for not attacking people who've had strokes. But go ahead. I like John Fetterman. You supported him over Dr. Oz. I don't vote in Pennsylvania. I don't have any right. I don't like Dr. Oz as a candidate because he's against women's right to choose. So I, that's that would be normal. I don't vote in Pennsylvania. I was born there, but I don't vote there as opposed to Dr. Oz, who came from New Jersey. I also lived in New Jersey, by the way. <laughs> Princeton. Princeton, that's right. And what offended me was I had a stroke and this guy, Dr. Oz, who knows better, who's a cardiologist and definitely knows better, was impugning this guy as if he had cognitive difficulties when he had sensory difficulties. Having gone through that, I was offended. I had the same problem. I couldn't talk right. I couldn't do small talk. I couldn't do all kinds of things. And I did an hour interview with him. He was cognitively fine. He had to have a closed caption reader. We didn't edit out the ums and ahs like we do with everybody else. We put it out there the way he said it. I thought he did rather well. By the way, he did great the other night in his speech. There was no stumbling. He was fine. There was no closed captioning. He just It just matters where you are. So in the debate, he was under stress. He was under a lot of pressure and he got nervous. And it happened to me. And so Am I cognitively not here? That's not true. I just had sensory issues where I couldn't get out my thoughts very easily. And so I was against that. And I was not for Fetterman necessarily. I'm glad he won because he's he's for women's right to choose. He's for gay people not getting unmarried. He's for all kinds of things I believe in. And so I was offended that a doctor did that. I really, truly was. I'm sh- Look, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm not sure about that. I don't know. I don't know. But let me just tell you, I don't know him. Right. I just know the stuff he said was offensive to me from a policy point of view. And then when he had to insult someone who had a, a doctor insulting someone who had a major health crisis and got up, well, I just don't have any time for that guy. When you had your stroke in 2011, you were on a trip to Hong Kong where you were running a conference. You started to have this very painful migraine. In the aftermath of that, as you recovered, you obviously have. Mm -hmm. What did that experience do to you? Well, you know, my dad died of a cerebral hemorrhage when I was five. He was 34 years old. So that always affected me. The idea of you could die suddenly has always been with me. It just has formulated my whole life. And I'm very much, there's a great speech by Steve Jobs who talked about this too. He was sick several times. He finally succumbed to it. But very aware of mortality. So was Steve Jobs. A lot of us are who've had um, incidents like that. So when I had the stroke, it was a great reminder of the of the ephemerality of life, right? And so one of the things it did for me is I don't have time. I just don't have time for this. Like, I don't have time. I cannot engage in this bullshit. And so I think that's one. Two, I had young kids then. I have more now. I have double the amount now. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, the death of my dad was really devastating to me and it can't happen. It can't happen. I can't go for them like it went for me because it really was a bad thing. Um, So I thought a lot about that. And I thought about, you know, interestingly, when I had the stroke, a lot of people came up and they patted me. I don't like being patted. And we're like, hey, you need to slow down. I'm like, no, I need to speed up. Like, I don't got time for this. And so it really did uh, jumpstart me in my career. And I was very successful until then, but I got really successful after the stroke because I was like, I don't have time. I got to do what I want to do. And so I I quit easier. I moved on to new things. I took more risks. So I thought that was a, a good thing. And that's why I really admired John Fetterman. He got up. He went and did that debate. He knew it was going to happen. And by the way, Oz did all kinds of tricks. I watched him. You make people say complex words. Then you have a problem. I had a problem with complex words. I was really moved by a guy who, even though he knew he f- would fall down, he got he did it. And I know that feeling. And so I was really 
It changed my life in that regard. And in fact, the thing that caused my stroke was a hole in my heart. I have a thing called a PFO. I also have a, a blood situation that causes more clotted blood than most people. It's, a, it's not uncommon. Neither is the hole in the heart. It's actually one in five people have it. At the time when I had the stroke, um, it was open heart surgery to get it closed up. It's not very good to have a hole in your heart. And recently I went to see a doctor and he said, you know, with this hole in 20 years, you're going to have vascular dementia because little pieces of blood pop out into the brain over time. You have, And I was like, oh, whoa, wait a minute, really? And so I went to talk to my, a new cardiologist and a new neurologist. And it's now a 20-minute surgery through the vein in your groin. And I'm having it in December. And it'll close up the, the... The amount of medical advancement is so vast. I didn't want to have open heart surgery back 12 years ago, 11 years ago. And now I'm going to do it. And so, you know, again, I probably might not have done that if I hadn't had my stroke. But now I'm like, I have two more kids. I really don't want to have vascular dementia. I don't want another stroke. I think I'll do it. So it changes your life. You just move forward at a faster pace. That speech from Steve Jobs that you alluded to. Mm, love it. It was delivered at Stanford in 2005. Now, Jobs is someone that you knew and covered for years. I think the two of you had a kinship in that recognition of the ephemerality of our time here. And I thought, if you're open to it, I would like for you to read some of that passage. Sure, I have to pull it up. Hold on. I have it. Oh, okay. You have a link to it or something? I'll, I can get it. It's on your screen. Oh, okay. Let me look. Hold on. Sorry, I wasn't looking at my screen. That means this whole time you haven't looked at me? No, I haven't. I was looking at something else. What were you looking at? Whatever was on my screen. I don't know. Kara Swisher? <laughs> it was one of my kids wrote me, so I wrote back. You were writing back during the interview? To my children? Yes. I'm sorry. He, they rate higher than you do. I don't want to rate above them. No, that's right. My son had a question about dinner. He's 6'4 and he needs food, so I have to always feed him or else he'll eat me. Can't believe you didn't see me in this closet the whole time. I see you in the closet. I see you. I saw you in the beginning. So let me read this. This is from the Stanford Institute 2005. I urge people to listen to the whole thing and listen to him say it. I think that's really, uh, it's beautifully written, so it reads well. Um, I'll read this. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make big choices in life because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering what you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You're already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. What a great, what a great speech that was. He was dying then. It was interesting. He was ill and he had gotten better and he was looking good at that time. If you look in the speech, he'd gained some weight and um, he didn't think he was going to die. He thought he had beaten the illness and he hadn't. And what was interesting to me is that during that's the time period, he made most of the creative stuff that we live with today, his greatest inventions. And that's cool. That's really, he was dying and he made the greatest things. I did the last interview he did, public interview with Walt Mossberg. And it was, it was not a couple of months before he died, maybe six months. And I asked a question that I think the audience couldn't believe I asked. And I think it was single greatest questions I've ever asked, I think. He was visibly sick and he was visibly, he was so skeletal. He was so skinny. He had lost so much weight. He looked so fragile and he was still the most energetic person in the room, as far as I could tell. And I looked at him and I said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And oh my God, the crowd, you could be like, I can't believe she just asked a dying man what he's going to do with the rest of his life. But you know, we're all dying. And he was like, TV sucks, and here's why. And it was so great. He was he was so energetic to the day he died, I think. I didn't see him after that ever again. And 
that answer was, if you go back and look at it, it's just a fantastic answer. And he was moving forward even when his the minutes were ticking away for him. And I thought, we don't know how many minutes we have on this planet, any of us. He kind of did. And he still was as enthusiastic about living. And so I always found that very moving. My last question, that line, you are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. You mentioned the surgery you're going to be having. Your heart, yeah. <laughs> you just stepped down from uh, running the code conference. Mm-hmm. You're about to turn 60. Mm-hmm. Where do you think or hope your heart takes you next? Well, I've been a lucky person. I've had a really great career. You know, I was singing the other day to someone. I'm like, I could retire now. I think I've done enough. Like I've had the, like thousands of the best, some of the best interviews of the major technology figures of our time and others now. I could really just say, okay, I'm done and drop the mic. But I don't want to. I have a lot to say. And I think I, I always want to be innovative and entrepreneurial. Like in that speech, he talked about loving what you do every day. I love what I do every day. And until I don't, I will keep doing it. The minute I don't, I leave. You've noticed I've left a lot of places because every time it's because I'm like, mm, no, I'm not having fun. I'm not enjoying myself. I'm not growing. And so I have that luxury because of all the work I've done. But I think I'll just keep going. I just had two kids during the pandemic at this advanced age. I have four kids now, so I got a lot to live for. I'm not going to live forever, but I certainly, if anyone who has kids at this age, during the pandemic, you got to know, loves to live. And so, and and that's the kind of person I want to be up until I don't live. Having those kids, you've said, is the clearest indicator that you believe in the future. Since we started with the country, when it comes to that future, mm-hmm. where do you see us heading? Where do you see that heart heading for the nation? You know, I believe in people more than other people do. You know, everyone was going into this election dire. And I was like, no, I believe in voters. I believe in people. I think they want to live their lives. I think that these crazy loud people, you're paying, giving them too much purchase. You don't have four kids and not believe in the future. You don't. You don't. If you don't think the future's coming, you don't do it. The reason I said that was because I think it was J.D. Vance, once again, that troll, senator troll, let's call him that, elected senator troll to be. He said, you know, liberals don't believe in the future and they don't have kids and this and that. And I'm like, I have one more kid than you do, I think. So I'm not going to listen to you. We do believe in the future. We just don't believe in your future the way you want us to live. And so, yeah, I believe in the future. I'm very hopeful. It's hard to say in 2022. I'm very hopeful. It's better than it was. We're not living in medieval days. So here we are. <laughs> Kara Swisher, we've talked a whole lot about time, not wasting it, preserving it. Yeah. I thank you for the time and for sitting with me. Well, thank you. You're an excellent interviewer. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's our show. Special thanks to Odd White, the team at Vox, and of course, Kara Swisher. You can hear new episodes of her new show, On with Kara Swisher, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd check out our talks with Congresswoman Cori Bush, Ezra Klein, Ested Herndon, Beto O'Rourke, Michael Lewis, Stacey Abrams, Noam Chomsky, and Gloria Steinem. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. You can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, reviewing and rating this show on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez, especially Paulina for this one. Uh, without her help in the research department, I don't know if I could have got it done. As always, I want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Cambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Judd Apatow. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.